Guru Nation, welcome to episode 511 of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. In this episode, we actually, the team from the Clinical Research Circle and I, which by the way, links are in the show notes to that YouTube channel, and you can just search for the Clinical Research Circle on YouTube or on any podcast platform and you will find it. Uh, we interviewed Greg Johnson. He is a consultant to Kentara Therapeutics, and we talk about his career as a generalist, how he started out in data management, and eventually went out into the world on his own to do his own business uh, slash career as a consultant to the biotechs, and how he truly has become a generalist. Uh, and plays a very important role for many of these small cap biotechs. So definitely check it out. Um, also links in the show notes to the Patreon channel, patreon.com slash dancefair. It's only five bucks a month, includes a monthly mastermind, uh, includes uh, also weekly videos on digital marketing and uh, how to improve your opportunities in the space. Furthermore, in the show notes, we got the CRC Academy and the CRA Academy both now enrolling for future classes, both uh, with the very, I'm very pleased with the results for the students getting hired uh, in those, from both of those academies. Uh, and finally, if you need help getting studies for your sites, just text me 949-415-6256. And with that being said, enjoy this episode with Greg Johnson from Kintara Therapeutics. Take care. Hello, Guru Nation and Clinical Research Circle. Welcome to another episode. We've got Greg Johnson. Greg Johnson is the epitome of what we preach on this channel all the time, especially on the Clinical Trials Guru channel, as far as being a generalist and getting in as a specialist, but then expanding your skill set over the years to become a generalist and to become involved at a high level with biotechs, early stage, sometimes mid-stage biotechs. Greg, I mean, we can't wait to hear from him. Uh, and then he's, he's currently has, has a pretty big role with Kentara Therapeutics, symbol KTRA. What's your official title with Kentara, Greg? Technically, I'm a consultant supporting them, but I've been working with Kentara for about three and a half years now, and I function as the acting head of operations. Okay, perfect. So acting head of operations. Uh, and we're going to talk about that as well, because for those that may or may not know, I mean, for you clinical research nerds out there, there's this very important trial that Greg's involved with. He was a big champion for it called the Agile trial uh, for the glioblastoma study that Kintara is doing and that we've covered before. I think it's kind of a paradigm shift and maybe a sneak peek into the future of our industry, how that study. And then I want to get Greg's in, input on that as well. But Greg, thank you so much for coming. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. My pleasure. So let's start with uh, your career. How did you ever discover clinical research? Like, was it something that you proactively tried to pursue or something you just fell into? I know I kind of fell into it, which I have to say when I started out, which was about 28 years ago, was a fairly typical experience. A lot of, there was, there was limited possibility of really, you know, going to university and getting a degree in clinical research and going into that field. So a lot of the people I worked with at that time had, had also kind of fallen into it, either from 
working at an investigator site or having a background as a statistician, a lot of, a lot of different backgrounds, but kind of most people I think didn't know that the clinical research field existed until they joined it at that time. And, and I was no different. I was recruited by someone I'd worked with before to a completely different business for an opportunity to go to uh, Germany, to go to a city called Mannheim, Germany, where the company that I was hired at that time for, which was PRA International, which was a, a top five CRO, they later became PRA Health Sciences, and actually they were recently acquired by ICON. At that time, they were a much smaller organization. I spent about 15 years there, and they grew from about 150 people to 3,000 people during the, the time frame where I was there. And I was recruited because they were opening up a, a European headquarters. And they had about a dozen people. It was a group of 12 of us that, that started that out. And they, they literally wanted one person who was connected to the home office in Charlottesville, Virginia at that time, an, an American to go into the European operation, sort of perform certain functions, but also be a liaison back to the, a liaison back to the, the headquarters. So data management is kind of how you got started, how you got your foot in the door. Yeah, it was actually IT and, and then IT broadening into data management were the original original. Okay. And see, guys, you can't get any more specialists than that, but that doesn't mean that's where you stay. Over the decades, your career expands to a much more broader, more versatile role. You then became director of project management or product management with, with PRA and then vice president of operations and then vice president global data management. So you really had a lot of roles at PRA and you were there, it says from 92 to 2007. So you were really there like when they were a small company and then almost publicly traded if not publicly traded at that time, right? They had gone public, I think in about 2006, they went public. And, and that growth is part of where the opportunity to, to build the generous background came from because you, you definitely create new opportunities if you're if you're growing and opening offices and acquiring companies. It, it creates more more chances, really. And I was a big factor was just being mobile. I mean, I moved. There was a, a 15 year period where we we relocated from one country to another six times. So we wow. we moved around a little bit to take advantage of those opportunities. But we were keen to do that to have the opportunity to to live in different countries. And because of that, I think it also contributed to sort of building that background. Do you think you could have had those same opportunities um, if you were not able to move? Yeah, there's other ways to do it, but I, it, for us, it definitely, it definitely contributed. We were lucky to be in that position, and it, it was, it was also of interest to us. And and I think it also helped me with sort of creating the mind frame that that helped become a generalist. Because if you're if you want to be a generalist, one thing you end up doing is you switch from one role to another. And, and there's some challenges associated with that. It's, it, it's uncomfortable. Hmm. You spend four or five years doing something, you build up a certain level of, of, of expertise at it. You just, you gain experience, obviously. And if you move into another role, uh, you've already been exposed to it probably, you know, but just by context and by what you're doing. So you're not starting from, from square one, but you're definitely taking a, a step back in your relative expertise compared to the people you're working with. And I think that's uncomfortable for most people. It was uncomfortable for me a few times. But the experience of having moved from the U.S. to Germany at a point where I hadn't really traveled that much and didn't speak any German initially sort of <laughs> helped create a level of comfort with going into an unknown situation and just realizing that if you were patient and, and calm, you would eventually adjust and, and cope with the new situation. 
which is not different from, from going from one role to a completely different role. You have to accept that you're going to have some unease at first and have to have to learn some things. Mm-hmm. Let, let's get into, so after PRA, you went to Medgenesis Therapeutics. So sounds like it's a biotech, right? Um, yeah. Medgenesis is a, a biotech company based in Victoria, BC. The One of the last roles I had at, at PRA was we acquired a another CRO, about a 400-person company called Chromedica, which uh, was a smaller company than PRA, but they had, a, they had a larger international footprint. They had nice offices in Brazil and South Africa that were fully fleshed out, for example. And, and PRA had a, a great background in oncology, and Chromedica had real strength in, in CNS, so it was a really... It was a really nice merger, but they were headquartered in Victoria, and I offered to come up here as the person to, to integrate the new company into the old company. So that, that was a very interesting experience. The CEO for Chromedica stayed on at PRA for a number of years as the chief scientific officer, and in fact, had his office down the hall from where I was. So that was always an interesting situation. That was sort of the, the captain of a ship where the admiral is aboard. So you're trying to integrate... <laughs> A group of people into a new company, but their their old boss is still senior to you in the organization and sitting down the hall. So you had to, it was important to develop a really good working relationship with him. Well, he turned out to be the person who later founded Medgenesis Therapeutics as the principal shareholder and the, the chairman and CEO of that company. And that created the opportunity for me to move from PRA to a biotech company because of that. I gotcha. Okay. So basically because you were able to I guess, assist with the transition. And because you, in doing so, you developed a close relationship uh, to this person. What, what was his name again? This is uh, Dr. Eric Moore. Okay. The, yeah, he was chief scientific officer at PRA and then the founder of, of Medgenesis. Okay. So see, that's how opportunities find you guys. And then you, you quickly started. So you, like with a biotech, and I love, I feel like, we're again entering the era of biotechs. I mean, in the late nineties, it was like, you know, really hot. Then after the great recession kind of calmed down a little, we're in the middle of another biotech renaissance. And so I'm giving the same advice to people now, like, Hey, there's a lot of opportunities at these small biotechs. You went to be senior vice president of operations, chief operating officer, president and CFO. I mean, even with your skill set, it could have taken a lifetime just to reach any one of those three functions with PRA, you know, or like with a bigger company. Yeah, and that's, I mean, biotech is a great place if you want to get a broad-based experience, because if you're working with a smaller company, you, you simply have the opportunity to, to wear multiple hats. You'll, you'll often have a small group of people, maybe even four or five people who have, who have their own areas of expertise, but then there'll be a dozen other functions that the company needs to, to, to handle that maybe is, is no one's direct area of expertise. And if you, you know, have the willingness to sort of raise your hand and try to take on something new, you get, you get a little more opportunity that way. If you're, a big pharma can be an excellent place to work and build a great career. But if you're working for a Pfizer or a Genentech, they have, they have whole departments with expertise in areas <laughs> that biotechs don't have a single person on staff to, to deal with. Right, right. What, what, yeah, what is it... A- what is it about your personality or your DNA that makes you enjoy the chaos of biotech? Because a lot of people wouldn't enjoy that. 
But I like learning new things and I'm, and I'm comfortable with change. I think those are, are probably the two really key pieces. And then I think also, oh, sorry, I think also the fact that you are such a generalist, it, it, it just puts you in a really, uh, I mean, it's like you're in a uh, fish in a small tank, <laughs> but, but like uh, you're enjoying the whole process because <laughs> you know, basically everything. I mean, uh, you've been exposed to many, many positions in the past. And not just that, but also different cultures. And that uh, I, I am, um, I assume that shapes your uh, career uh, the way it is right now. Yeah, I, I, people I have mentored, I've always encouraged, and, and not everyone has the opportunity, of course, but if you have the opportunity to spend a period of time working in a different country, I, I find that that really rounds out your approach probably better than any functional role role can. I mean, it's a different kind of learning experience, but it's 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 really important, I think. So let's get into really quick Cagely Consult uh, Cagely Johnson Consulting Inc. That's your you're the principal consultant there. Yeah, it's it's Cagley Johnson. Oh, Cagley Johnson. Sorry, Cagley Johnson Consulting Inc. You're the principal consultant. Can you tell me how that started? what problems you're trying to solve. And this is the entity that you are currently providing support to Kentara as well as a few other uh, right. biotechs. So can you kind of talk to us about that? Yeah, when MedGenesis finished our, our phase two program and, and we're at a point where things were going to change there, I, I left the organization and started a consulting company with my spouse, whose last name is Kegley. And she is a, an IT specialist and and webmaster who has about 20 years of supporting biotech companies too. So she's kind of working the, the same space most of her career. And, and our purpose was to really be able to be in a position to, smor- to support small biotechs who needed someone with the generalist skill set, something like a, a chief operating officer, but were maybe in a position where hiring a full-time person didn't, didn't make sense for their, their situation. And, and that's a challenge a lot of biotech companies have. They need they need a certain level of expertise in, in different functional areas, but it doesn't make sense for them to build out a, an internal staff of 15, 20, 25 people because things happen with, with early biotech companies. You have, you have delays with manufacturing or you can end up with a clinical hold of your one primary study. And if you're, if you're carrying a burn rate of several million dollars a month and you get put on clinical hold for three or four months, it, it fundamentally changes the company. So so a lot of biotech companies strive to have a low overhead cost, a low burn rate, and, and still have the ability to address the skill sets that they need to move their programs forward. So I felt like there was an opportunity for someone with a journalist background to maybe support more than one company and kind of you know divide themselves into a fractional head <laughs> of operations, so to speak. See, Monica, it's so great to see someone who is living embodiment of what we tell our students yeah. <laughs> every single day. It's CRA, CRC Academy. Monica and Chris, you guys have any questions for Greg? Because I want to spend the rest of the interview on Kentara, uh, specifically the Agile study. But uh, any other questions, just career generalist questions, biotech, early stage biotech type of questions? Oh, I, don't, I don't really have a question, just a statement, something you had said. Uh, initially about falling into this accidentally. I think that's still the case for most people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the I, research think that, industry. I think that's true. Th- there are programs that exist now that, that I don't think existed 28 years ago where you can you can actually go and get like a, a master of science in clinical research. And, and some of those are, are very good. Although in, 
in my experience, most of the people I know who have done those programs, I, I did, I did an MSc in clinical research at Liverpool John Moores University, were, were like me. They were people who had actually been in the industry for five or six or seven years at that time, realized they wanted to be doing this and went, and went back and got a, a qualification in the area, as, as opposed to setting out as an undergraduate to go into clinical research. Yeah, that's right. Hey. Just out of curiosity, how many countries in Europe? How many what? How many countries uh, uh, oh. were working in Europe? <laughs> yeah, we lived, in, we lived and worked in Germany for about four years. And then from there, we went to Swansea in South Wales, where I set up a data management center for, for PRA. So I spent a little over five years in Europe, in, in Germany, in the UK. And then, of wow. course, I've been in Canada and the US in, in addition to that. So it, even with the ability to move around and travel, those are you know, those are still like culturally similar Anglo-Saxon countries. So there's, there's a lot of opportunity to broaden your horizons if you're able to travel. I mean, I, there, 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 there are bigger opportunities than even what I've been able to take advantage of in this field. Because most companies do work international. Even small biotech companies have, have international footprints sometimes. Uh, you know what? I got to ask because I get so many people and I never have an answer for data management. How does one get into data management? And then how does one transition from data management to, let's say, being a CRA? If you have like a quick answer to these two, I don't know if there is a quick answer. Uh, people get into data management a, a couple of different ways. Some people, um, of course, when I was in uh, data management, everything was paper-based initially. So there were a lot of people who came in through real entry-level positions doing data entry, people who just had a medical terminology background or had gone to a class to get good medical terminology and kind of came in as data entry. And that gave them a foundation to, to grow from. I and mean, most people who, who did that for a few years went on to, to broader roles. Clinical data coordinators tend to be people who maybe have an, a, a life science undergraduate degree, or maybe even somebody who worked at an investigator site and just wants to, to do something different. Database programmers typically came from a, a, a programming background. So people who were comfortable with computers and medical terminology were kind of the, the key things for getting into that field. And, and data management's not a, a bad grounding to, to build from just because, you know, you, you enter thousands and thousands of case report forms, you're exposed to a lot of what's going on in, in clinical research, maybe from a, you know, initially a smaller perspective, but just, just seeing the data that's being collected and what's being done with it is a, brings you close to what the end point of all of this is. So it's nice from that perspective. So I guess, I guess the audience wants hope because we have a lot of data management people watching, but they want to be CRAs. And I mean, yeah, we could spend another hour just on this topic. I guess they feel CRA is safer than data management because of AI and the emergence of technology. I don't know if you want to shed some light on that, but is it possible to go from data management to CRA in your opinion? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I would be happy to, to take someone from a data management group and, and make them a CRA. For one thing, a major function of the CRA is monitoring the data at the site and actually knowing what happens with, with data entry and data cleaning, you know, as an internal function is a, is a, useful, is a useful thing. If you've, if you've been the person generating queries from the data management side, you not only know how to resolve the queries from the site side, but you also know how to prevent things from becoming items that need clarification in, in the first place. So I think a data manager is a great, a great person for a, a CRA role. And then a CRA okay. role is a great opportunity to broaden your horizons and also includes the travel component. I mean, that you, you get a little exposure from traveling from that too, so. A That's little, a great point. just a little. <laughs> it, may not, it may not necessarily be international, 
but but you'll definitely get a broader view of what's going on in the industry by going to multiple sites that's for sure Mm-hmm. Yeah, 80%, 80% traveling. <laughs> that's the, that's At sometimes, uh, that's sometimes being uh, very optimistic about the travel time for CRAs. It's usually 120% of the time traveling. Yeah, there's, there's a road warrior element to it. There's no doubt about that. So I guess, Greg, these last 10 minutes, I want to focus on the agile study with Kentara. Okay. Uh, because you use, so like we said earlier, and this part's maybe just going to be the short clip for the clinical research circle. But as we said earlier, you're currently providing consulting support to Kentara Therapeutics. You're, you were the champion, the leading champion for the Agile study. Uh, can you talk to us about, number one, how you discovered this as a potential strategy? Uh, if you discovered it, I'm, I'm not sure. And number two, how difficult was it to get in? Because it's not like they accept anybody. You had to be invited to this program. So can you talk about those two things? And then we'll talk about the efficiencies that that brings. Sure. So the, the company has, Qatar has two lead molecules, uh, VAL83 and REM001. VAL83 is a drug that we're, we're developing in glioblastoma, so GBM. And the, the registrational study for that is being conducted through the GCAR GBM Agile study. And we, we think this is the preeminent path forward for, for, for developing this drug. But we also think it's actually a, just a foundational study. It's a, it's a really great study that has the ability to, I think, change the industry a little bit. So it's a really an example of how clinical research can be done. And we were, we were fortunate to be invited into this uh, our CEO, Saeed Zarabian, had put together a scientific advisory board or had revamped the scientific advisory board at Kintara when he came aboard. And a couple of the people he brought into that, which included John DeGroote, who was, he's at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and he was the, uh, the interim head of oncology at that time, and Tim Cloacy, are both of these scientific advisors to Kintara are actually involved in the GCAR GBM Agile study. Tim Cloacy is the principal investigator for the overall study, and John DeGroote's now the principal investigator for our treatment arm in the study. So, so we were able to hear about it and get connected to the right people through our scientific advisory board. And then we had a, a number of conversations with them, both in terms of was VAL83 a good fit for their study, and did it, did it make sense for Kintara to move forward with uh, a platform study like this where someone else is functioning as a study sponsor? So there's you know, there's things to consider with that dynamic, of course. But the more we looked at it, the, the more sold we became on this approach, just the, the elegance of the study design, the opportunity for a small biotech company to, to kind of play on a level playing field with, with people like Bayer, who were one of the other treatment arms in the study. It, it just seemed like a really good fit for, for our situation. So we were, we're thrilled to have the opportunity to be a part of that study. Yeah, I mean, the more you think about this kind of this is kind of sort of like a paradigm shift we didn't see this 10 years ago right or even five years ago I mean I'm sure it was done before but it seems to be more of a common theme now where there's these consortiums that are kind of managing studies do you feel like this is actually potentially the future yeah I think it has that potential because I think it's a I think it's a really good way to do this for a a number of reasons it's it's patient-centric I mean it's really focused on the patients and trying to bring a new treatment to the patients in the, in the fastest, most elegant way possible. GCAR, the, who function as the sponsor for GBM Agile, are, are a nonprofit. 
they frankly put don't they don't care which treatment arm <laughs> wins or which treatment arms make it to registration as long as the best treatment gets to the patients as fast as possible which is which is the right way to do clinical research and because of the way the study is designed i think it's really beneficial for patients patients enroll in a clinical trial with a in a indication such as gbm with hope that they're going to get access to an experimental therapy they they are typically dissatisfied with what standard of care has to offer and they're they're hoping to have an opportunity to try something different as well as to contribute to moving science forward for future patients i think there's a a philanthropic aspect to a lot of people participating in clinical studies. But because of the way the GCAR study is designed with, with three treatment arms and a common control group, one of the things that falls out of that platform study design is that for the patient subtypes that are in multiple treatment arms, a patient is randomized with an 80% probability of getting one of the experimental treatments and a 20% probability of going to the control group. In a typical clinical trial, you may have a 50-50 chance of going to standard of care or, or maybe a two-to-one chance, depending on how the, the study is designed. Here, you've got a much greater chance for the patients to actually receive an experimental therapy, which I think is, a, is an important aspect of the study. It, it's good for us, too, because I think it encourages recruitment and allows the study to, to progress more rapidly. It, it's good for the science because it's moving forward with three different treatment arms at once, and it's good for the patients because they have greater opportunity of... of <laughs> you know, kind of getting what they wanted out of the study. And it's good for, it's good on the wallet too, for a small cap biotech, right? Oh yeah. There's a number of aspects. I mean, right off the bat, the shared control group is a really, a really nice setup. We, any company participating really is only footing the bill for their share of the control group while having access to all of the patients in the control group. And it's actually even cooler than that in the design, because we joined this study after it had been running for a significant period of time but we're able to take advantage of patients in the control group who enrolled from the beginning of the study on. So we don't even, we're not even limited to just concurrently enrolled patients in the control group and having a larger control group besides cost savings also helps with the statistical power. I mean, we're just, we benefit from that. There'll be less variability in those, those elements of the analysis. And that, that increases the likelihood of success if your treatment is actually effective. Yeah, I wanted to, I, I did want to highlight that because I think that, you know, as social investors, myself, Monica, Chris, it's kind of our job to, this is not financial advice, by the way, for for anyone watching. It's our job to show you guys the biotech's cool things that we think are happening, such as the agile study. I mean, it's kind of a paradigm shift, but I think the average investor in this sector does not realize all the moving parts that go into a clinical trial. And if you're sponsoring it on your own, things can get really expensive and then you can't afford any misses on data, enrollment, any milestone, any type of milestone is going to potentially kill the company. So in the, in, in the case of a Kentara, you guys have set it up to where there's way less pressure on you guys for short-term results and you could take a longer-term approach. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I, I think that being in a platform study like this really de-risks things for Kentara in a number of ways. We, we have access to, because this is, is really a prestige trial and it has the three treatment arms and, and the GCAR is backed by really all of the, the experts in the space, we're taking, we have best of breed vendors, for example, the, the CRO running the study on behalf of GCAR is Icubia. Covance is the central lab, Metadata is the data management provider, Don Berry and Associates are the statistical support. Like these are all experts in their field. 
Yeah. And small companies can have access to those folks, but it, it's challenging if you're if you're the world's, you know, one of the world's largest CROs and, and you're dealing with a five-person biotech company, they'll, they'll certainly say they're going to pay you the same attention that they are a big pharma company, but, but there are economic realities to how they run their business. On the other hand, when you're part of a, a platform trial that has three different sponsors involved, backing from experts in the field all the way through to the FDA, you know, I, I feel like we get probably excellent attention from all the folks who are working on this study. And that, that de-risks it for us too. So I, I think there's a lot of ways in which this really is an ideal situation for a small biotech company to be participating in a study like this. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, my favorite part of this setup is it truly does benefit the patients even before any of these products may or may not be commercialized. You have, like you said, 80% opportunity to receive an investigational product as opposed to a control group, whereas in a regular study, maybe 50-50 for the most part. Yeah, exactly. Monica, Chris, any final questions for Greg regarding Kentara um, or anything else? As, as social investors, we've got <laughs> we've got to inform the community of all things possible. Did I miss anything? I'm sure you no, did, but it's not so. coming to mind. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I did too. But this is why we do part twos. This is why we do yeah. part two. Yeah, I mean, I just want to add that I, what I love about Quintara and all the projects are obviously uh, the studies that uh, Quintara is carrying out are for disease that uh, otherwise they wouldn't have any treatments uh, or, or treatments that work as good as uh, as the ones that you guys are studying right now. So that's a great work, great job, great opportunities, and uh, and, and obviously great treatments for people out there. Mm-hmm. And and I know, Greg, I don't know, how, we're early in the study, right? Like you guys, Kintara just joined in January. It's now May. So it's fairly early in the study. We can't necessarily ask for like, patient stories or anything like that. But do you guys think you have something like that planned for the future? Maybe featuring like a patient journey in the study or is that something you have to talk to Seagar uh, uh, about? Uh, GCAR certainly will. Uh, GCAR. Uh, GCAR certainly plays a, a role in how these things are discussed, but we, we do work with them to, to really publicize the study because it's a, it's a great, you know, it's not just about enrolling people in this study, but I, I also hope we're helping we're we're helping to popularize the idea of a platform study. G, GCAR is doing something similar in in the COVID space. They have plans to do it in some neurodegenerative diseases, I believe. Yeah, I mean, this is something that can be replicated, and, and in my opinion, should be replicated. So we'll, we'll do everything we can to help publicize that. And of course, we want Kintara's participation in this to be yeah. well understood and, and appropriately received too, because I think it puts us in a, an enviable position. Well, that's our job then as social investors to keep an eye on this. Um, one last benefit, I almost forgot. See, I did forget something. The FDA, Kintara had talks with the FDA. The FDA prefers this kind of a model, right? Like the Agile study. The, Is that- the design of this study was vetted in some detail with the FDA, and, and there's a, a level of stated support for the design and, and how it goes forward. And there's, you can see on the, the GCAR website or the Kantara slide deck, for example, a quote from Janet Woodcock about 
platform trials and that this is the future of clinical trials to it. Wow. So I think that's a, I think it's a pretty strong endorsement from the regulatory <laughs> companies. Yeah. That's a big statement. Uh, <laughs> for those watching till the end, there you go. You get a golden nugget. You investors that are doing your due <laughs> diligence, you stayed till the end. Good for you guys. Uh, not financial advice. Uh, I'm not even sure if we own any Kintara, honestly. Chris and I have a few companies we, well, I don't, I we do. do. Monica I does. Do. Okay. But doesn't mean we won't. Okay. So just do your own due diligence, guys. Invest for the long haul. We try to cover the companies that are worth looking at long term. We're not traders. We don't look for catalysts and things like that. We're long term. Uh, so thank you, Greg, for coming on. I really appreciate it. And Monica and Chris uh, for joining. And we'll, we definitely have to do a part two at some point as well as we get more I guess as the study matures and evolves, we can get an update from you on enrollment or all kinds of other things. Right. Thank you guys. Thank you, Greg. Thank Thank you everyone for watching and listening and uh, catch you all later. Bye-bye.